I would like to encourage you to take a copy of the scripture and turn to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 45 this morning. Around 2,700 years ago, the people of God, the nation of Judah, were a relatively small and insignificant nation surrounded by world powers. Powers that were mighty and formidable. To the north and east of them was the power of Assyria, later to be followed by the great power of the Babylonian Empire, and followed beyond that by the Persians, the Medes and the Persians, and the dominance of the Persian Empire. And then down to their south and west, of course, was the other great world empire of Egypt that shaped so much of the ancient world. And these ancient powers made powerful boasts, and those powerful boasts were backed up by mighty conquests. And those mighty conquests were attributed to their gods. The nations all around them had their gods. The nation of Egypt, many gods that they worshipped. The sun god Ra was dominant among them. The pharaoh considered to be the very son of that god. Osiris, the god of the underworld and rebirth, who it is believed created the annual flooding of the Nile River, bringing great fertility to the Nile Valley, and offering a great transportation lifeline in that ancient world, really making Egypt one of the most prosperous nations on the face of the earth. And then the nation of Assyria. Assyria with its namesake god Asher, represented by a bull, believed to have lent his mighty strength to the Assyrian armies, when they conquered the nations around them and subdued and later utterly destroyed the northern ten tribes of the people of Israel. Or the nation, the empire of Babylon, whose patron god Marduk was believed to have created the world. And this god founded the city of Babylon as the center of that world, and the Babylonian rise and domination seemed to be a vindication of this God by the power of Marduk. Jerusalem and Judah were captured and brought into captivity. This is the thinking of so many of those people. And of course, the Babylonian Empire eventually fell to Persia with its ancient Iranian gods. And Persia, that empire, became one of the most extensive, geographically extensive empires In the ancient world, it really dominated all of northern Africa to the west, all the way over to the borders of India in the east. All of these powerful nations surrounding this little couple of tribes of Israel that we call Judah, oftentimes in history because of the ascendancy of ungodly cultures, it appears that their gods and their worldviews are actually prove that, they're, that that's, this is reality, that this, this is going to win the day as if uh, a momentary ascendancy uh, somehow testifies to veracity. But it was in that kind of situation where they were surrounded by these ascendant powers that the Lord spoke to Judah through the prophet Isaiah. And the purposes of his speaking to his people were, on the one hand, to encourage Israel's faith 
that there is one God, one true God alone on the face of the earth. In the face of these powerful nations that worshipped other gods and had other worldviews, this was to encourage their faith, this word from God. And then secondly, it was to invite, to summon the nations to come into the Lord, to turn from their idols and to trust the one true and living God. Since the Lord God is God alone, this is the theme of this passage. This is the theme of of this whole section of Isaiah from beginning in chapter 40 and running all the way through chapter 48, focusing on theology proper, the doctrine of God. And in this passage in particular, reminding us that there is one God and one God alone. This is still the theme. Notice how it is uh, embedded all throughout this text. If you look now at your Bible in verse 14, the end of the verse, you'll see this repeated theme being brought forth in this text. Verse 14, the end of the verse, there is no other, no God besides him. Or if you look down now to the end of verse 18, I am the Lord and there is no other. Or the middle of verse 21, there is no other God beside me. And the end of that verse, there is none besides me. And the end of the next verse, verse 22, I am God and there is no other. This is, this is the dominant theme all through this text, that the Lord God of Israel, Yahweh, the Lord of hosts, is the only God who exists. He's been making that point again and again, and he has also been bearing testimony to that, uh, to the singular nature of the Lord's deity. And the testimony that the Lord bears to his deity throughout all of these passages is that he alone has spoken ahead of time what he will do and sovereignly brings what he has predicted to pass. And he presents this to the nations as testimony of the reality of the Lord God. And so what has the Lord predicted? Well, he predicted the Assyrian invasion and the miraculous escape, the miraculous deliverance of the city of Jerusalem in that invasion. Later, the conquest of Babylon was predicted. The 70 years of captivity, the Lord predicted. He foretold the rise of the empire of Persia. He told ahead of time of the ascent of a Persian by the name of Cyrus, who would put forth a decree to go and return and rebuild the temple. He foretold the subsequent rise of the Greeks under a great singular conqueror. He foretold the subsequent division of that Greek empire into four parts. He predicted the rise of another world power from Rome. He predicted the raising up of his great servant, his son, who would save his people by his substitutionary death. He predicted the resurrection to life of that servant and his glorification, and he predicted his eternal kingdom, which would grow gradually to encompass the whole of the earth. The Lord keeps putting forth these things as testimony that he and he alone is the God of all of the world, the God of history, the one sovereign over all things. And you know, one of the real blessings is that you and I have a unique vantage point that even the people of Judah in Isaiah's time did not have. Namely, that we can look back and see that everything that the Lord said that he would do 
He what? He did it. But for Judah, in spite of the temporary domination in their day of these idolatrous powers, the Lord insists that he and he alone is God and that the entire world will be submitted to the Lord and to his people. This is the theme. And this is the way that this passage both begins and ends. Let me point this out to you. If you again, take a look at the text. In verse 14, the middle of verse 14, the beginning of our text, which runs from verse 14 down to verse 25, the beginning of that text in verse 14, the Lord speaks about the nations that surround Israel, and he says, they shall follow you, they shall come over in chains and what? And bow down to you. And then if you go to the end of the text, or near the end of verse 23, the end of that verse, the end of verse 23, the Lord says to me, every knee shall bow, and every tongue shall swear allegiance. So I want to preach to you this morning, on that theme, every knee shall bow. Let's read our text together. Isaiah 45, beginning in verse number 14, reading to the end. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, excuse me, started in 18, verse 14. Thus says the Lord, the wealth of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and the Sabians, men of stature, shall come over to you and be yours. They shall follow you. They shall come over in chains and bow down to you. They will plead with you, saying, Surely God is with you, and there is no other, no God besides him. Truly, you are a God who hides himself, O God of Israel, the Savior. All of them are put to shame and confounded. The makers of idols go in confusion together. But Israel is saved by the Lord with everlasting salvation and shall not be put to shame or confounded to all eternity. For thus says the Lord God who created the heavens, He is God, who formed the earth and made it, he established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I did not speak in secret in the land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, you survivors of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. And there is none besides me. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn. From my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me 
Every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord, it shall be said of me, are righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed all who were incensed against him. In the Lord, all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. Now, the Lord, there, there are four uh, major sections in this passage, and they're grouped together in two pairs. I want to just show you how this passage is structured that'll sort of help us as we get in, not to get lost for where the Lord is, is going with this passage. There are four sections grouped in two pairs, the beginning and the end, the first part, which is verse 14, and the last part, which is verses 23 to 25. Both predict the submission of the world to the Lord and to the Lord's people. So he begins and ends sort of in the same place. And then in the middle, there are two sections, one detailing the Lord's hiding himself from the world, verses 15 to 17. He is a a God who hides himself. And the other, verses 18 to 22, about the Lord's revealing himself to the world and even calling the world to himself. This is the way the passage is broken down, and I, I think you'll, uh, you'll see this. Hopefully it'll be apparent as we go through this text together. But in the very beginning, we have a prediction of the submission of the nations to the Lord and to his people, verse 14. Notice what the Lord says, that the wealth of Egypt and Cush, Cush being in the southern part of Egypt, a day where you would find the, the nations of Sudan and uh, Ethiopia. In Egypt and Cush, the wealth of these people shall be yours, the Lord says. Just kind of like they plundered the Egyptians in the time of the Exodus, and the Lord gave the wealth of the nations to his people, the Lord says he will do that for his people again. And not only the wealth of the nations will come to the people of God, but the people themselves will be given to Israel, to Judah. He says the Sabians, this is the people of Sheba, the people that inhabit that area where that is in the Arabian Peninsula, the southern part of the Arabian Peninsula, the southern part of Egypt. Those people, he says, men of stature from Sheba shall come over to you. The Lord will bring to his people in submission to his people, uh, not only will he bring them the wealth of the world, but he will bring them the peoples of the world. And they will confess, the end of the verse says, they will confess, surely God is in you and there is no other, no God besides him. Just as when the queen of Sheba came in her amazement and visited King Solomon, the Lord's anointed, and confessed that that his wisdom was beyond measure. She hadn't been told the half of it. And she brought him gifts from afar to enrich the house of God and the people of God. This passage looks likewise to times again when the Lord will enrich his people, when he will bring the peoples of the earth and give them to his own people, people like the Ethiopian palace official that was led to Christ by Philip, the evangelist who came to the people of God, in fact, reading the very prophecy of Isaiah, 
And of course, this very day, this very day, friends, the Lord is still doing this. For the Lord is bringing people from across that area, across all of the nations of the earth, really, into the kingdom of his own beloved son. Today, we have missionary connections with four different churches in Khartoum, the capital city of Sudan. The Lord is bringing these people and all uh, that, that belongs to them and bringing it into his house and enriching the kingdom of his son. All of these people and their wealth will come, the Lord predicts. And not all of them will come willingly. Notice in the middle of the verse that it says they shall come over in what? In chains and bow down to you. There are many who will be brought unto submission to the Lord and submission to the people of God, not willingly, but because of an overwhelming evidence and testimony when the Lord manifests himself. In the end, the whole world will be brought under the feet of the Lord Jesus one way or the other. God's beloved son, God is determined to exalt him and that every knee would bow before him. Listen, God is absolutely determined that this will be the case, that his son and the people of his son will be exalted and all men will yield to him, either from the heart, from faith, or when they are overwhelmed at the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ, the shock and the awe of that. This is a prediction of the submission of all the world to the Lord and to his people. But those two conditions, like some people coming, um, willingly, trustingly, believingly bowing and confessing the Lord as God alone, and others brought, brought to, uh, under that rule by overwhelming might and force, these two conditions are expounded on, really, in these middle two sections. And so let's look secondly at verses 15 to 17. And in these verses, Isaiah says that many will experience a God who hides himself in the day of their calamity. A God who hides himself. Look at verse 16. All of them are put to shame and confounded. The makers of idols go in confusion together. And this is in contrast to verse 17, Israel who is saved by the Lord with everlasting salvation. And the Lord says to them, you shall not be put to shame or confounded to all eternity. So the Lord speaks of a people to whom he hides himself, from whom he hides himself. And, and in contrast to the people of Israel, who will not be ashamed, this is a reminder, friends, that there is a day coming when all of the things that people hope in and trust in and have faith in and are devoted to, any, anything other than the Lord, that they will see that those things are absolutely futile and people will be ashamed of what they once boasted in and gloried in, the hope that they once took from their idolatrous philosophies and lifestyles and ambitions will be confounded when they will be left in utter confusion their whole worldview shattered by the uncontestable reality of the one true and living god the lord says there is a day in which these people 
will be put to shame and confounded. People from whom the Lord hides himself. And in the day of that judgment, in the great and awesome day of the Lord, they will recognize, because it will be unmistakable, they will recognize that there is no God besides him, but it will be for them too late. The Lord will hide himself. How earnestly I hope that there is no one in this room who will be left alone in that great day of the Lord's manifesting of himself. To be left alone by God, to, be, to have God hide himself from you in the day of his judgment, to have him withhold from you any help, any salvation in that day is the most fearful thing that any human being will ever experience. But praise the Lord, there is a people to whom the Lord reveals himself. And that's what you have in this next and most lengthy of sections, verses 18 to 23. In this passage, we see that the Lord calls that people, a people to himself. He calls a people to himself from the ends of the earth, and he reveals himself to those people. Verse 18, he begins by reminding them that he created the world. And he created it not to be empty, but to be inhabited. The Lord created the world to be inhabited with worshipers of himself. Remember in the very beginning, God made the world and God put man, mankind into the world, man and woman. And he said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and take dominion over the world in my name. The Lord created the world to be inhabited by his worshipers. But of course, very quickly, sin came into the world. And mankind rejected the word of God and chose autonomy instead, rebelled against God, and suffered the curse. That judgment of God culminated in a great flood that destroyed every living being on the face of the earth except those that God had preserved. And when God brought them through that judgment, that flood that wiped out the face of the earth, the Lord brought them out the other side, and he said to them again, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and glorify me by the way you use this world. In other words, the Bible all along pictures God creating a world to be inhabited by true worshipers of himself. This is God's purpose for history. This is where God is taking the world to create a world inhabited by worshipers of himself. But even after that day, of great judgment, the people uh, continued to sin against the Lord, and uh, many of the nations turned away from the one true and living God and began to worship idols, to worship other gods. You think of all of the peoples of the land of Canaan, and all of the idolatry that just dominated those people. And what did the Lord do? He once again brought a great judgment and wiped that land clean, just like he did in the flood. And he wiped that land clean. The people of Israel were supposed to go in and to drive out or to exterminate all that existed in that land, to clean it out. But the Lord intended not just to bring judgment on the world, but to populate that land with inhabitants, with a people who would glorify him. Just as he did in the beginning, just as he did after the flood, so he would do again. And so even in the final judgment, 
Even looking toward the end of time when God brings his great judgment across the face of the whole earth. And we've seen in Isaiah how he's been building to that all along, right? He's been using these judgments of local people groups as pointers to the great and final universal worldwide judgment that he will bring. But even in that day, the Lord intends that the earth be inhabited by a people who truly worship him. This is what he reminds them of. And for that reason, the Lord reveals himself. In contrast to the God in verse 15 who hides himself from idolatrous people who will be ashamed in the last day, this is a God who reveals himself. Look at verse 19 now. I did not speak in secret in a land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain. No, he manifests truth to them. I am the Lord, I the Lord, excuse me, speak the truth. I declare what is right. Friends, to the Lord's people, to Israel, God's word was not obscure. It was not hidden. He revealed himself. He spoke truth. He made clear predictions to them. He gave them propositions that may be understood and embraced and believed that they might know the one true and living God. He manifested himself to his people so that they might know him. And let's not forget that it's it's not really the physical descendants of Jacob who are in view here. Right? It's not just merely the fact that these people were physically descended from Abraham. I want to remind you of an important interpretational principle that is taught to us even by the inspired writers of the New Testament themselves, that if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, Galatians chapter 3. That Abraham's promise, the promise of God to Abraham was, quote, to all his offspring, not only the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, as it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. It's the principle that says in Romans chapter 2, a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit. So what we need to see here is ultimately God's promise to all who are Christ's people. All who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, all who are united to him, these are the people to whom God reveals himself. These are the people to whom God speaks truth, to speaks plainly so that we might know him. And to us who, has, who have believed, God has so graciously made himself known. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11, praising God for both hiding and revealing himself. He says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding. In other words, God hides himself from people who are self-righteous, who feel like they don't need to learn from the Lord, who feel like they are have no Uh, needs in themselves. They are self-sufficient. I praise you, O Lord, he says, that you have hidden the things of God from the wise and understanding and have revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me, Jesus says, 
by my Father, and no one knows the Son. No one can really know Christ except the Father. And no one knows the Father, he says, except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to what? To reveal him. So if you have come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have come to know God through the Lord Jesus, then praise the Lord that he made himself known to you, that he opened your eyes to the truth, that he revealed himself to you. He has not done so with every nation, but with those who are his people. He has manifest himself. This is pure, sovereign grace. But in the very next breath, after speaking of God's sovereign grace in hiding his truth from those who are self-righteous and revealing it to others, the Lord in the next phrase says this, Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Jesus, after speaking of sovereign grace, then begins to speak in terms of a universal invitation to all who are willing to come, to all who know their need. And the Lord would speak to any of us this morning who sense our need for deliverance, for salvation, for for forgiveness by God to come to him. And this is exactly what you have in Isaiah. Notice what comes next in verse 20. Isaiah 45, verse 20. Assemble yourselves and what? Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, you survivors of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God who cannot save. What a foolishness that is, he says. That people worship these gods that they carry around in procession. You have to carry your God. And yet then you ask your God to save you. You're calling out to a God who cannot save. But he lays down the challenge to them in verse 21. Declare and present your case. Let us take counsel together. Who told this long ago? In other words, who predicted these things that are taking place and are about to take place? Who predicted them? Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Did any other God of any other nation predict the rise and dominance, for example, of Cyrus, king of Persia, that he would deliver the people of Judah from captivity and send them back and enable them and help them even to build the holy temple of the living God? Who predicted this, the Lord says? Was it not I, verse 21, the Lord, and there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior? There is none besides me. So, verse 22, so what should you do? In light of the fact that he is the one true and living God, the only God, what should you do? Verse 22, turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. You see what this is, right? This is a universal appeal and invitation to all who who have been idolaters up to now come to turn away from their idolatry and to come worship the one true and living God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that they may in fact be blessed by God themselves, that they would not be put to shame in the day when every knee bows, but that they might be saved in that day. This is a universal invitation. And I love it because it includes everyone who is willing to hear. 
whoever you are, whatever your background, whatever you've done, the Lord says, turn to me and be saved. All the ends of the earth. I mean, does or does that not include all of us? Everyone who has an ear to hear is welcomed to come. Open your eyes, he says, and see the futility. And this is what the Lord is calling to all of us through this text this morning, that we would open our eyes and see the futility of all of the other philosophies of the world, the vanity and the emptiness of them. That we would see the falseness of all of the gods, the so-called gods that the peoples of this world worship in ignorance and disobedience to the one true and living God. All of the the vanity of the things that people live their whole lives for, give themselves to, devote themselves to, right? Because in a sense, whatever you devote yourself to is your God. And he, he says, what other gods, what other gods are there that will not leave you in the end ashamed and confounded and disgraced and left alone? There is one God and one God alone. Turn, turn to that one true and living God. And friends, I want to remind you that there is no salvation apart from a turning, a change of mind, a change of heart and direction. You cannot keep pursuing vanities and sin and in the end be delivered by God in the day of his judgment. You cannot keep worshiping something, being devoted to something other than the one true and living God, and in the end be preserved in the day of his wrath. Turn from those things, from those vanities, from those idols, the Lord says, and be delivered. You cannot be double-minded, limping back and forth between two opinions. If the Lord is truly God, then serve him. If there is some other God, then make your choice. But the Lord calls everyone to turn decisively to look upon him for salvation. Turn to me. The Lord says, turn not to, not to a new denomination or, or a new set of, of rituals or practices. The Lord calls every one of us to turn to him. He is the Savior. He is the one who reveals himself. Listen, have you turned to the Lord from all of your sin, from all of your self-determination, from all of the idols of the world, turned away from that and said, Lord, I believe you are the one true and living God. Your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, is Lord of all. And I need you. Oh, Lord, save me. Turn to me, the Lord says, and be saved. Be saved from the judgment that God will bring upon the world in the day of his wrath. And the Bible says that we can be saved in the day of God's just wrath against sin because Jesus Christ himself, God in the flesh, bore the justice and the wrath and the anger of God against all of our ungodliness and all of our unrighteousness so that our sin might be taken away in Christ, be born upon his shoulders, be taken in his body as a punishment 
in our place. This is the glory and the wonder of this salvation that is in God alone. And in the day of God's judgment, then all of those who are in Christ Jesus, all of those who are united to him by faith, who who who, who dis, disregard the, the gods of this world and devote themselves to the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, all of those will be sheltered and protected. They will be saved in the day of God's judgment. In Judah's context, the world seemed to be dominated by idolatrous powers. And I think one of the things that really would have been the case for them, definitely was the case for them, is that they were tempted to doubt God's promises. Because God had promised that, that, they, that he would bless these people, that they would be great in the earth, and they're surrounded by nations that are destroying everything in their wake. And their temptation is to, to doubt and to wonder about the promises of God. And so in this last section now, verses 23 to 25, Isaiah circles back to speak of the certainty of the prediction that everything will be submitted in the end to God, to the Lord. Verse 23, notice the way he begins. By myself I have sworn this. I have sworn what? That every knee will bow and every tongue will swear allegiance. By myself I have sworn. He guarantees the, 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 the certainty of this reality with a divine oath. He swears by himself because there is nothing greater by which for God to swear. Now this phrase, I by myself I have sworn, this is identical language to one other place in the scripture. It's only used one other place just like this. And it's in Genesis chapter 22 regarding the promise that God made to Abraham. We call it the Abrahamic covenant, right? And in that covenant, the Lord promised to Abraham, among other things, that I will give to your offspring all of the nations of the earth. Your offspring, singular, will possess the nations, will possess the gates of his enemies. Your offspring, Abraham, will possess even the gates of his enemies. To possess an enemy's gate is to be is a, is a demonstration of your victory, your your control over that whole uh, people, over that whole city. By myself, I have sworn this. The Lord says, recalling that promise from my mouth. Now look at the verse twenty-three. By myself, I have sworn. From my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. In other words, the Lord says, "What about this? My word about this is not going to return to be empty." It will, in fact, accomplish that which I purpose. It will succeed in the thing for which I sent it. My word is sure. It is certain. And here is that sure word. What is it? To me, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. That's the word. That's the sure word from God that was given to encourage the people of Judah in what they faced, that in the end, every knee, the knee of the mightiest kings of Babylon and Persia, the knee of all of those soldiers who trampled the 
land that God had promised to those people that every knee would bow before him. Every knee would bow and every tongue swear allegiance. Now, the New Testament quotes this. Philippians chapter 2 quotes this and clarifies for us that we are seeing here the exalted Lord Jesus being prophesied about. To me, Jehovah says, well, who is this? It is the Lord Jesus Christ. To me, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. This is once again, like we've seen so many times here, in the New Testament quoted as a reference to Jesus demonstrating the divinity of Christ, the fact that the Lord Jesus is, in fact, God alone. It's, this verse is also quoted in Romans chapter 14 as a reminder that we will all stand before the judgment seat of God and have every one of us to give an account. That will happen. And the certainty that we have is the very oath of God. In other words, the Lord has, by taking an oath about this, by himself swearing that this will be the case, that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, the Lord is by this establishing beyond all doubt the certainty of this. I mean, this is more certain, as it were, than the prediction of the Assyrian invasion or the conquest of Babylon or the 70 years of captivity or the rise of Persia or the decree of Cyrus or any of the other predictions that we can look at that have certainly come to pass. This is set apart even from all of those by the divine oath, by myself. I have sworn this, the Lord says, in the day of God's judgment, that Lord will be visibly enthroned as God. The Lord Jesus Christ will be visibly enthroned as God and all of the, his enemies will eternally be put to shame. Friends, are we, are we believing of that? I mean, really and deeply in our souls that this is more certain than anything else that you've ever been certain about. That this is the great certainty of the universe, that God is absolutely intent that Jesus Christ will be visibly, publicly recognized as sovereign over all. That is God's great purpose for this world. That's where the whole world is driving. God's intent is to glorify himself in the person of his son by bringing a whole world of his creation in submission to him. Everything that he ever made put under his feet. And he alone, sovereign over all of it. This is certain. It's more certain than the fact that you are alive today, that you're sitting there breathing and living. It's more certain than all of the things that many people bank on as without even giving it a second thought. The Lord has promised this by an oath. Every knee will bow. There is a kind of bowing that will be done by many people in that day, which is a bowing of recognition that there is no more way that they can dispute that Jesus is the Lord. But there is another kind of bowing, and it is a bowing of faith. Verse 25, the end, of the, the end of that passage. In the Lord, all the offspring of Israel, that is all who are united to Christ in faith, 
all of them shall be justified and shall glory. In other words, their faith in Jesus Christ, their allegiance to him in the end will be vindicated. It will be justified. Those who even now are justified by faith then will be vindicated by the sight of the risen, exalted Lord Jesus Christ. And when that day surely comes, then we and all men will see with our eyes the Lord Jesus Christ on the throne of heaven and earth, whose eyes are like a flame of fire, whose face is like brighter than the noonday sun. When, when the Lord manifests the glory of his son, there will be no disputing it. And many who have bowed the knee, even now, even now who put their trust and their faith in the Lord Jesus will in that day be justified and glory in him. Glory in him and share his glory. Their faith, their trust, their allegiance, their suffering, their perseverance, all of this will be vindicated. They will enter into the joy and the glory of their Lord. This is what the Lord reveals. And it is for us to receive it and to believe it and to let it have its, its um, intended impact upon us. And you know, what is that? What is the purpose of this word of God to the people of Judah? What, what's the purpose of this text for us? I believe we are not left without help in that. On the one hand, it is most certainly here to encourage us who are believers to persevere in our faith in the midst of an idolatrous world. To keep on believing that what God has revealed to us is actually true. And it, what God has predicted about the glory of his son will most certainly come to pass. It is for the encouragement of our faith that, we, that, that the submission of all things to Christ is absolutely true. And here's the way the writer of Hebrews ministers um, that purpose to us with regard to this truth. Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 12. Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 12, the writer of Hebrews says, For when God made a promise to Abraham, remember all of this is using the language of the Abrahamic promise, by myself I have sworn, your offspring will possess the gates of his enemies, or in the words of Isaiah, every knee will bow to him and every tongue will confess that there is only one God, and he is Lord alone. Now, I, now the writer of Hebrews says, when God made this promise to Abraham and reiterated again, again with Isaiah, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus, Abraham, having patiently waited, okay, that's what we all have to do, isn't it? God makes this promise. He swears by himself the certainty of it. What is our part? To wait patiently for the, for the fulfilling of it. Abraham waited patiently, and having patiently waited, verse 15, obtained the promise. Verse 16, for people swear by something greater than themselves, right? I swear on a stack of Bibles. I swear on my mother's grave. We swear by something greater than ourselves. And in all of their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. You see what he's saying? God did something special about this promise. He guaranteed it with an oath 
so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge, that is to him, might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. You see, this is why I'm saying this is the purpose of God in a text like this. We have the inspired writer of this letter to the Hebrews to tell us that God's intent in this is to encourage us to have strong encouragement that we would hold fast to what he's promised, that we would hold on to that hope, that we would not be shaken by the fact that, that great powers who have very different beliefs rise up from time to time, but that we might persevere in our faith, no matter what people say about our Lord Jesus, that we will know that one day they will bow before him. And I think the second purpose for this text is found right in the only imperatives, the only commands that are in this text itself. And those are commands to come. Those are commands to turn and be saved. Because turn away from the worship of idols and false gods and bow the knee before the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to tell you this morning, listen to me, listen, every one of you, if you will bow the knee before the Lord Jesus, confess that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved in the day of God's wrath and God's judgment. And I want to encourage you to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and to turn from all your sin. If you will cease from your rebellion, against God, if you will cease from your determination to live independently, to make your own decisions, and give yourself over in submission to the Lord on his throne, then you will be saved in the day of wrath. Today, the word of God comes to you. Turn to me, all the ends of the earth, and be saved. Our Heavenly Father, I pray now, that you would speak this word to our very souls and hearts, that you would strengthen and encourage our faith, and that you would by this call a people to yourself. We pray now that even through this word, you would reveal yourself to your people. In Jesus' name, amen.